0: History is the most important subject that you can study and if you can't see what's happening in the past you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. They will say, this This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. How many years will pass before Hitler doesn't seem so bad? Crazy question, I know, but stay with me. History has a way of making tyrants look better than they were. Take Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. They lived over 2,000 years ago. Both of them were conquerors, killing hundreds and thousands of people each. Now we don't think of killing that amount of people as being glorious, but both are glorified today. They set out conquering and slaughtering kingdoms, and in Alexander's case, created an entire empire, all for personal glory. They weren't fighting for a just cause. These men would be the first to admit it too alexander slaughtered hundreds of thousands destroyed an empire the relatively benign persian empire and he gets called great that tag was added by admiring romans but many greeks at the time saw him as a barbarian tyrant when one athenian orator learned of his death his response was alexander dead impossible the world would reek of his corpse interestingly Alexander motivated Caesar. Greek historian Plutarch writes that when Caesar read the history of Alexander, he burst into tears. His friends were surprised and asked him why. And Plutarch has Caesar saying, Do you think I have not just cause to weep? When I consider that Alexander, at my age, had conquered so many nations, and I have all this time done nothing that is memorable. Caesar was 32 at the time the same age Alexander was when he died. Now, Caesar went on to kill his hundreds of thousands, and his name became a title of authority and prestige, and not just in Rome, but even German and Russian kings were called Caesars. That's history doing its work there. Maybe the main reason why Caesar and Alexander get glorified treatment isn't just time, but because they won. Look at another brilliant general, Napoleon. Not as much time has passed, just over 200 years. He took French armies and conquered Europe, but then he decided to attack Russia and lost. He doesn't get nearly as much glory, no Napoleon the Great, and yet we still remember him because of his wars and the slaughter. What does it tell you about humanity that those we remember the most in the past 2,000 years were butcherers? Napoleon's reputation doesn't look so bad because the next would-be world conqueror that comes after him is much more evil. It's Hitler. So maybe we tend to view Alexander and Caesar and all of these other leaders more kindly because they all pale to our most recent tyrant. Now this question of how history makes some leaders look better, it isn't just academic. There's a certain leader who lived a thousand years ago that leaders in the European Union today are championing. This leader isn't as well known as Caesar or Alexander, but his rule still impacts us today, just like theirs. This leader also slaughtered thousands. Some historians even claim he waged ethnic war. We know he instituted a system of mass terror and compelled people to think his way on the pain of death. sound familiar but like Alexander the Great he gets the title the great at the end of his name it helps that he was a winner after all let's think about that for a minute what do you think humanity living a thousand years from now would be calling Hitler if he had won World War II would they be calling him Hitler the Great seems likely if the Germans got to write the history books Now, that didn't happen, and we can be thankful. But a thousand years ago, something very similar like that did happen. Not only did this man get the label of the great, he's being glorified today as a symbol of Europe. And Hitler's very own stomping ground. This man is actually being used as a symbol to unify Europe. In a way, you could say he's being used to prevent a future Hitler. Imagine that using a former tyrant to prevent the rise of a future tyrant. It would seem like a plot of a Hollywood movie, but this is more remarkable. This is real. It gets even worse, though. There's a prize named after him. They give it out every year. Imagine in our alternate timeline, winning and displaying a Hitler trophy on your display case. Now, not everyone remembers this guy, like I said. He's less known than Caesar or Alexander. It's only the European leadership today who are using this man as a symbol. And they complain he's forgotten. So recently they set up a mobile museum about this guy so people could learn about him. They want Europeans to remember him because he was the guy who created Europe. He made a state out of what was previously a geographical label. He's also the reason why Europe was born Catholic. So, who is this guy? History knows him as Charlemagne. He was King Charles of the Franks, Charles the Great, father of Europe. And he was remarkable. He took many different Germanic tribes, the leftovers and remains of the Roman Empire, and forged them into a unified empire in Europe. And in 800 CE, he was crowned by the Pope as Emperor of the Roman people. That civil government, which was led by a religious government, later became known as the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne created the whole idea of what Europe is. It's an idea that lived on when his empire fell apart long after his death. European conquerors since claimed to be his successor. Any attempt to unify Europe, gets traced back to Charlemagne. One of the founders of the European Union, Otto van Hasburg, said the European community is, quote, living by the heritage of the Holy Roman Empire, though the great majority of the people who live by it don't know by what heritage they live. He should know. He's a descendant of one of the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. As of now, Austria has the presidency of the European Union and so the imperial treasury in Vienna is promoting tours for people to view the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. They want more people to remember that history and be inspired by it. Otto van Habsburg also said, quote, We possess a European symbol which belongs to all nations of Europe equally. This is the crown of the Holy Roman Empire, which embodies the tradition of Charlemagne. End quote. Every year since 1950 in Aachen, And this is probably a good time to mention that I'm terrible at pronouncing names. So forgive me if I get some of these names wrong. I will. In Aachen, the city of Charlemagne's primary residence, the International Charlemagne Prize is awarded to the person who has helped unify Europe the most. Even Bill Clinton received it one year. That prize makes you think this guy's like George Washington of Europe. And yet there's a side to Charlemagne that doesn't get talked about as much. In 1997, the Charlemagne Prize went to a German president, Roman Herzog. He made a very honest statement when accepting the prize. He said, quote, Charlemagne, after whom our prize is named, made his own particular choice, the first unification of Europe. At such an hour, the truth must be told. Only by wading through a sea of blood, sweat, and tears did he reach his goal. End quote. Let that sink in. Can you imagine saying, you know, Hitler did a great thing unifying Europe, but let's be honest, 60 million people had to die to make it happen, and it was worth it. How crazy is that? It's the kind of thinking that puts the ends before the means. It's the kind of thinking that the ends justifies the means. pay whatever the price. Now, Charlemagne didn't just use violence. He used an institution that has endured longer than any empire. In some ways, it's more terrifying than the empires it has dominated. And yet it was the institution that on the surface looked holy. That institution was the Catholic Church. And yet when you study this history, it's anything but holy. Charlemagne wasn't the first to do this, nor the last. In all history, this has happened six times. Six times an emperor forged his empire with the help of the Catholic Church. Charlemagne was the second. It was in the third resurrection or version of this that the label Holy Roman Empire finally stuck. Charlemagne's wasn't the biggest, longest-lasting, or even the most violent of all these versions of the Holy Roman Empire But I think it was the most remarkable. It's the quality that sticks out. That's why all the later versions of the Holy Roman Empire look to Charlemagne as a symbol. You see, the relationship between the government and the Catholic Church was never easy, but in Charlemagne's reign, it worked the best. Why? Because from what historians can understand, Charlemagne was a religious man. He actually believed in what the Catholic Church was doing, its teachings and its methods. It was the core to the empire he forged. He forced it on his subjects, on pain of death. And if you want to understand how this remarkable leader who killed tens of thousands and forced Catholicism through a system of terror became an enduring symbol for Europe and another one of history's The Great. Well, first you have to understand the Catholic Church. How else are you going to be able to see Charlemagne and his reign for what it really was? And the only way to understand the Catholic Church is to know how it started. Now, the origins of the Catholic Church are less known than you realize. We assume the Catholic Church's foundation and its teachings stem from Jesus Christ and its authority from Christ. It is what the Catholic Church claims. And yet, looking into the history, you get a different story. It's not so cut and dry. Edward Gibbons writes about this in his The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He wrote, quote, The scanty and suspicious materials on ecclesiastical history seldom enable us to dispel the dark cloud that hangs over the first age of the church. What historians like Gibbon note is that from around 70 CE, after the apostles, who were directly taught by Christ, had for the most part died, The recorded history of Christianity is clouded until the dark fog lifts around 150 or 170 CE. It's a fascinating story. But it's a story that is missing chapter 2. You see, chapter 1 is the history you get in the Bible, the history that covers Christ's life all the way to his death and then about 50 years after that. It records what happens during the apostles' lives until they die. And after they die for about a hundred years, what would be the next chapter in this history is missing. You go from what's recorded in the Bible, from the letters of the apostles like Paul, Peter, and John, to nothing. Chapter 2 is gone. And then you get chapter 3, the history written by the Catholic historians in the mid to late 2nd century. When they write chapter 3, they give us their brief summary of what is missing. Their synopsis of Chapter 2, and it's suspect. The few records we have in that time period can't be completely trusted, but most historians believe the basic outline. They don't have any other option. This isn't anything new in ancient history. Records get lost or destroyed all the time. But there's something different about this. There is a cause to be concerned about how Chapter 3 reads. That's because the Christianity we read about in chapter 3, when compared to the Christianity we read in chapter 1, the Bible, is radically different. Most historians miss how alarming this actually is. You see, when modern historians read chapter 1 and chapter 3, to them, the radical change was a natural progression. They fill in the blanks, but they do it incorrectly. Here's what Will Durant writes in his The Story of Civilization. Quote, Christianity arose out of Jewish, apocalyptic, esoteric revelations of the coming kingdom. It derived its impetus from the personality and vision of Christ. It gained strength from the belief in his resurrection and the promise of eternal life. It received doctrinal form in the theology of Paul. It grew by the absorption of pagan faith and ritual. It became a triumphant church, by inheriting the organizing patterns and genius of Rome. End quote. Pretty much every historian I read has this version of the summary. The true church started Jewish and the naturally adopted paganism to survive, and they spread and they grew in the Catholic Church. That's pretty much what you get in every history. Except when you read the Bible, you don't read it this way at all. The changes are not some natural evolution. It's an all-out war, a battle of gospels. And what came out was nothing like how it started. Now, this presents a problem to someone claiming to be a follower of Christ, doesn't it? If what goes in comes out different, how can the two be called the same thing? Let's take milk. Milk gets turned into cheese but you don't still call it cheese milk, do you? But just like in our alternate timeline of World War II, if the Germans conquered Europe and they write the history, well, it looks a lot different, doesn't it, than if the Americans won and wrote the history. Well, the history we get is coming from Catholic writers who are writing for a reason. Paul Johnson writes about this in A History of Christianity, He writes, The fact that the bishopric of Rome had an accurate and authoritative list of saints and scientific dating and calendarizing and had a reference system with authorities for all questions which impinged on church doctrine, practice, and discipline was an immeasurable advantage in dealing with bishoprics all over the West. They increasingly looked unto Rome, not just because they venerated St. Peter and his shrine, but because Rome knew the answers. Where else to look, end quote. Well, was that historian right? Is that how things really went? How would you know? No one would know unless they looked at the Bible. Before the biblical record stops, you get enough of the picture to know what is really happening. Now I know it's not popular to use the Bible as a history source, but the Bible has first-hand accounts of what is going on at this time. And what the Bible reveals is fascinating. Here's how Gerald Flurry puts it in The True History of the True Church of God. Quote, The church history in the world just disappeared because the Catholic Church destroyed all the records in the world. It was recorded in several different biblical books, though, but mostly in the Apostle John's writings and specifically in the Epistle of John. End quote. John lived longer than the other biblical writers and wrote his epistles around 85 to 90 CE. So his epistles reveal more of what was going on, and all the other records for about another 80 years or so were destroyed. This is something Joe Flory builds on from another church historian, Herbert W. Armstrong. Here's what Herbert W. Armstrong wrote, quote, there is a well-organized conspiracy to blot out all record of church history during that period. A hundred years later, history reveals a Christianity utterly unlike the church Christ founded. End quote. So we find out that chapter 2 is missing, and that it's missing on purpose. And why would it go missing? Well, the reason is made plain when you get into the biblical history. Now, when we go back to these first-hand accounts, it's important to remember that our vocabulary to describe early Christianity uses different terminology than what the apostles used. And they didn't know exactly how everything was going to turn out like we do. What is clear to them, though, at the time, is that there's an organized conspiracy to overthrow and change what they were teaching. You get an early glimpse of this when Paul writes in about 53 CE in his letter to the Galatians, quote, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. End quote. And he goes on to state later there that there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. In just 20 years after Christ died, Paul is fighting to keep what Christ preached alive. The war is on. You see this over and over. In his second letter to the Corinthians, it's very apparent. Paul writes, Quote, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin of Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel, quote. he goes on and warns the Corinthians, about that war. Herbert W. Armstrong points out that Paul is not referring just to anyone, but a specific person and his teachings. And the Corinthians would have known what Paul was talking about, about who he was referring to specifically, even though the name wasn't mentioned. He was warning them of a spirit of rebellion and disobedience stemming from one source, Well, what was that source? It's shown in the Bible, in the book of Acts. It involves some of the biggest heavyweights in the Church of God at the time, Peter and John. Peter was the chief apostle. His real name was Simon Barjona. And it's important to remember that Peter was a surname Christ gave him. It means stone. But it also signified his office as chief apostle. It's kind of like calling him president to a certain degree. Peter and John are in Samaria in 33 CE. One of the original seven deacons named Philip carried the gospel into this area, which is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. This area, though, was different than Jerusalem because it was populated by descendants of Babylonians. About 700 years earlier, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel, deported them, and brought in people from Babylonia and its surrounding cities. With them... They brought their own Babylonian mystery religion. The Bible says God sent lines to trouble them because of that Babylonian religion. So the recently settled people asked the Assyrian king to bring back a priest to teach them about the God of Israel. But the priest was from a line of priests set up by the ten northern tribes' first king, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was the guy who introduced paganism to keep the ten tribes from turning back to Judah when Israel split. So basically, Samaria had their own Babylonian mission religion mixed with a pagan version of what the Old Testament taught. The Jews spurned these people and called them dogs. Now, Philip is there preaching the gospel and performing miracles, and he faces what is essentially, the Bible describes, a plague of demons. Here's what the Bible records. Quote, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with the palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there is great joy in that city. These demons possessed people and caused them to the shriek and wail. Now, for those of you listening who don't believe the Bible, just remember, the key players in this time and in Charlemagne's life all believed in the existence of evil spirits. So it will be hard, if not impossible, to fully understand him and the Catholic Church without some knowledge of this. And for those of you listening who believe the Bible, well, this has to be one of the most remarkable stories in history. So Samaria is filled with demons oppressing the people there. The people were deeply impressed by Philip's preaching, the miracles, and they were joyful. Many were baptized. The news of this is incredible. Peter and John quickly traveled to Samaria so they could pray and lay hands over the baptized so the people can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this all sounds normal, if not for one major encounter. This encounter is brief, but loaded with symbolism and meaning. It involves the leader of Samaria's Babylonian religious system. That pagan system introduced when the Babylonians were deported to Samaria. This leader was even baptized by Philip. His name was Simon Magus. Now, Magus is a title of authority just like Peter. Magus is a Persian title for magician. The Magi were the priests in the Persian Empire. Priests were some of the most educated people. They knew astronomy, math, the history of their people. The Babylonians gave a similar role with a different title to their priests. So this is nothing new, and for his Babylonian religion, it was normal. The English word magician derives from this word. But back then, it would mean closer to something like sorcerer or wizard. He was Simon the Sorcerer. The Bible shows that Simon Magus had a connection to the demon world that led him to do extraordinary things. The Bible says, quote, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard because of that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Quote. Simon was a sorcerer who bewitched people, and now you see why the Bible says there are so many demons there. From the poorest to the richest, the people of Samaria venerated him as if he was God. They said he is the great power of God. Simon Magus basically put himself in the place of God. That kind of thinking is not normal. Not only that, but the people's reaction to him was also not normal. They were besides themselves. Bewitched even has connotations of insanity. That's how great the effect was. What does that look like? I try to think about what it would be like for this man to have the people living in this area, all the people in there, under a spell. And I can only think of two different situations. Now, the first seems whimsical, but I can't help but think of Beatlemania. Have you seen the footage of the fans? Mostly teenage girls. But these fans are going crazy for them. It was an intense fan frenzy. These people were hysterical. And it was notably different than, say, fan behavior for Elvis. You have interviews of some of these women, and some even admit they don't know why they're having such intense reactions. Interestingly, the Beatles got in trouble for saying they're more popular than Jesus. Didn't help their PR in America. But the second example I can think of, of how a person can have extraordinary influence on people, is Adolf Hitler. This is a serious example now. It has more bearing on what we're talking about. His ability to influence people and get them rallying to a cause led to 60 million people dying. There were many people who could see Hitler's hypnotic effect on others. Those who spent time with him, they often drew special notice to his eyes. One German philosopher who met Hitler later told Hitler... That it was as if his eyes had hands on them and they would grip you. Those eyes bewitched. That's some demonic power there. And if you don't believe in a spirit world, well, it's obvious that once again, something's not quite normal. That's what it was like with Simon Magus in Samaria. Until along comes Philip and later Peter and John. His spell is broken. The people began to stop following Simon Magus. There is a great joy in the miracles and learning what Philip was teaching. Simon is there. He sees this. He wants to understand what's going on. And the Bible says that he was there watching all the miracles, learning all he can about what Philip was teaching and the doctrines of Christianity. When Peter and John come up, they lay their hands on those baptized. Those repentant believers and those people received the Holy Spirit. And Simon Magus sees this. He recognizes now how Philip could do all those things. He wanted that power badly. Now, Simon Magus is in line with all of those who are waiting to be baptized. He's watching the laying on of hands. He sees those in line before him receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. He gets closer and closer. He's thinking about what he's seeing, what he's heard. He's thinking of his own position of power, which is now in doubt. And now it's his turn. The two Simons meet. What does Simon Magus do? He offers them money. Now his true intentions are revealed. Here's how the Bible describes it. Quote, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given... He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon Magus wanted the power of the Holy Spirit so bad that he offered to buy it and the power to lay hands. In other words, he wanted to buy the office of an apostle. Sounds a bit Catholic here, doesn't it? Wanting to buy both, he gets nothing. The Bible records Peter's answer. But Peter said unto him, your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in a gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray you to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. End quote. This is one of the greatest rebukes of the Bible. Perish with your money. Repent, that is, if you even can Peter tells him. Peter wasn't even sure if Simon Magus could be forgiven. And Peter wasn't even done. When he tells Simon Magus he is into the gall of bitterness, Peter is actually quoting an Old Testament phrase that means something specifically. Gerald Flurry writes in his book, quote, the phrase gall of bitterness in ancient Israel referred to a person who attempted to introduce pagan practices into the nation's religion. Peter knew Simon would do this in the future. Peter's rebuke of Simon was a grave prophetic warning, End quote. Peter could see that Simon Magus was no ordinary guy. For one, he bewitched Samaria, and he was beyond charismatic, well-educated too. The whole area was under his influence. Peter knew of Simon Magus' abilities and knew this influence would be a poison. When Peter tells Simon Magus he's in the bond of iniquity or lawlessness, Peter is saying, Simon Magus was completely bound up in lawlessness. Joe floregan quote, That is a fundamental teaching of the Babylonian mystery religion that emerged from Simon, that the law is done away. And now you can see what Simon Magus was thinking when he offered the money. When Simon Magus heard Philip teach, he was trying to figure out how he could inculcate those teachings with his own Babylonian religion and create something far more potent than he could do on his own. Joe Fleury writes again, When Simon Magus saw that the spirit of power came with these apostles laying on of hands, he was impressed. He decided that he wanted to take Christ's name. He wanted to call his perverse religion Christianity. The church had the spirit of God, and Simon Magus tried to buy that spirit and the office of an apostle, end quote. When he put this all together, the demons, the potential inability to repent, what Peter is saying is that Simon Magus was evil. Joe Fleury puts it even better. He says Simon Magus was Satan incarnate. After this stinging rebuke, the Bible records Simon saying this, quote, Simon shows no signs of repentance and slinks away. Now, you don't read anything more directly about Simon Magus in the Bible. You do get that in a few Catholic his- histories. But what you do get in the Bible is the effect of his teaching. It's like the venomous bite of a snake. The poison begins to work its way into the bloodstream of Christianity being absorbed by those not holding to the teachings of the apostles. You see it all over the New Testament. I quoted Paul already. Peter deals with it. He warns, quote, Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they, with feign words, make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. That was Peter. Jude writes this, There are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. John who lives longer than the others, deals with this war of the Gospels the most. Counteracting the message of lawlessness that Simon Magus and his followers preached, he writes, quote, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists whereby we know that this is the last time. The apostles are doing all they can to stem this poison, but it spreads. It gets to the point that the followers of John— This apostle who is known for laying on Christ, John and his followers are getting kicked out. It's a full-blown war. Simon's teaching is leaving its mark, and his followers are growing in power. If his teachings are poison, well, then it's a poison that tastes sweet. Now his spell was broken in Samaria, but Simon Magus goes on to Rome. This is according to early Catholic historians. He took with him this idea of spreading his teachings and calling it Christianity. Rome was the place you'd go if you want to make a name for yourself. It was the capital of the known world at the time. And Simon Magus wanted power. He had a vision. He found a better version of his religion that could get more people under his influence. And he would use it as a tool for power. And if he could get it right, he could even have political power. So he goes to Rome sometime around 42 CE when Emperor Claudius reigns. Now Catholic historians are the source of this information. Modern historians pretty much reject all of it, but then they reject the Bible and its history as well. So this whole period for them is dark, but we do know he went to Rome and here's what early Catholic writer, John Martyr writes. Now he's writing to a Roman emperor at around 155 CE. So this is about a hundred years later, he states, quote, He was considered a god, and as a god was honored by you with a statue, which statue was erected on the river Tiber between the two bridges and bore this inscription in the language of Rome Simone Deo Sancto, to Simon the Holy God. End quote. So Simon Magus is in Rome spreading his poison. It's the most influential city in the Western world and one of the most populated cities on earth. If he wins the battle here, Simon wins the war. And he's doing a very good job of getting people's attention, even the emperors, according to these histories. Now, there aren't many more details about what happens here. And what we do have, we have to take it with a grain of salt. For example, Catholic historians place both Simons, Simon Peter and Simon Magus, in Rome But the Bible doesn't show Peter in Rome at this time. It shows Paul was in Rome. He started the the Roman congregation sometime around 59 CE. You know, Peter wasn't there because Paul never mentioned him in his letter to the Romans. Simon Peter wasn't there until right before he dies sometime around 70 CE, a year or two after Paul dies. It was around Emperor Nero's time. But Catholic historians will tell you that Simon Peter founded the congregation in Rome and that he had a second confrontation with Simon Magus. The two Simons face off once again. One account says it's in front of Emperor Nero himself. Simon Magus is apparently desperate to win. He lost the first battle and he needs victory. So in one account he says that he'll fly. He starts to levitate but is opposed by the prayers of Peter and Paul and falls to his death. Another account says he requests to be buried alive so he can rise in three days and nights like Christ. So he's buried alive, but never comes out. That seems fitting when you think about his bold claims, don't you think? These stories were recorded about 100 years after the fact. Now we know that Simon Magus went to Rome. But I bring these stories up to show how the Catholic historians put false information in their history directly contrary to the Bible, so you know why you should not take them as fact completely. You'll find out soon why this false information about Peter being in Rome with Paul was inserted, why it's so important. The point is Simon Magus went to Rome, successfully grew a following, and then died. And he didn't reach his great goal of political power at the time, But his teachings lived on, and we know this from what John writes in the Bible. John's writings are the only way that the clouded parts of the early church history really clear up. Two decades after Peter and Paul died, John is still alive and writing. His writings put the puzzle together on how the Catholic Church was founded. But no one thinks to look there. Instead, when people are trying to learn about the history of the Catholic Church, they look to the Catholic historians. Two decades later, John is still dealing with the same issues stemming from Simon Magus after that sorcerer dies. It's the same issue Paul and Peter dealt with. His religion continues to spread and grow in power. And you can see, based on what he was teaching, how popular it was getting. Simon Magus essentially taught that you didn't have to obey the law, just have faith in the existence of Christ. Now, how could a message like that not spread quickly? I love James' response, by the way, to that kind of teaching. He wrote, You believe that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble, end quote. Near the end of John's life, Simon Magus' toxic message was spreading and turning people more and more away from what John and the other apostles and Jesus Christ himself taught. They taught you needed to repent be baptized, start keeping the law. They kept the holy days like Passover and Pentecost. But to this growing group of Simon Magus's followers, that just all looked Jewish. Simon Magus's followers got so powerful, they openly opposed John and kicked him and his followers out of the church. Think about that. John, who knew Christ, being kicked out. Here's what John records. Quote, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. End quote. John's followers are being cast out. Now, wouldn't you say that the people John says is opposing them? and kicking his followers out, wouldn't they be from a different church? The teachings are different. The leaders are different. The only thing that is the same is the name, Christianity. And that's the trick, isn't it? Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, you could say, pulls out the greatest trick ever. And it's after he's dead, the church we read about in the recorded history after this lost century, this clouded period, is totally different. It's Simon Magus's church, not the church started by Jesus Christ. But Simon Magus manages to fool the world into thinking his church is the true church. His followers kick out those following the apostles. And everyone believes that Simon Magus' doctrines are Christian doctrines. Now, that lie wasn't actually new to Simon Magus, that method. Jewish historian Josephus says the Samaritans, remember Simon Magus was one, called themselves Israelites, even though they weren't. So calling his teachings Christianity was right out of Simon Magus' playbook. By calling his teachings Christianity and convincing everyone it was true, Simon Magus managed to deceive Rome and eventually the Roman Empire they would all fall for that lie, except for a very few. Now, while the history doesn't show this, it is clear about the difference, though. Will Durant writes in his Story of Civilization that the church grew by the absorption of pagan faith and ritual and by copying Rome. He writes, quote, "...in this perspective, the Jewish life of the man Jesus could be put into the background." Faded almost as in Gnostic heresy, and the God Christ was assimilated to the religious and philosophical traditions of the Hellenistic mind. Now the pagan world, even the anti Semitic world, could accept him as his own. Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. End quote What Will Durant is saying is that at this time Christianity becomes unmoored from its Jewish roots. It adopts paganism, and by doing so, it becomes popular. He goes through a whole list of major Christian doctrines and shows how they combine to form what is called Christianity today. He writes, quote, The Greek mysteries passed down into the impressive mystery of the mass. Other pagan cultures contributed to the syncretist result. From Egypt came the ideas of a divine trinity, the last judgment, and a personal immortality of reward and punishment. From Phrygia came the worship of the Great Mother. From Syria, the resurrection drama of Adonis from Thrace, perhaps the cult of Dionysus, the dying and saving God. End quote. The list goes on longer, and really those pagan religions stemmed from the mystery Babylonian religion anyway, the religion Simon Magus was leading. The point is at this time Christianity no longer resembles what Christ or the apostles taught, but it kept its name. What happened? How did it change? Simon Magus' followers kicked out, the followers of Christ and the apostles, and they claimed leadership. They wiped out the records. When John dies sometime around 100 CE, the reliable records die with them. All you have left now are the few records left by Catholic writers filling in the gaps. And in about 60 to 80 years from when John wrote his epistles, what the Catholics are writing is utterly unlike what John and the apostles had written. You see it in the teachings. It takes a few hundred years, but gone is the message of repentance, law-keeping, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Sabbath. Instead, you get Easter, pagan holidays, and Sunday worship. But what about the claim that Simon Peter started the Catholic Church? Well, did he really start it if it isn't his teachings? The teachings belong to the other Simon, Simon Magus. He's the true founder of the Catholic Church. For those of you who know Catholic history, Simon Magus' attempt to buy an office probably sounded familiar, didn't it? Simon Magus renames his authoritative title. He calls himself Simon Pater, or Simon Papa, which replaces Simon Peter. Pater and Papa were titles used by the early bishops of the Catholic Church, and later those titles are reserved only for the Bishop of Rome, and they change to Pope. Even Simon Magus' name was uniquely suited for his deception. His church, which he called Christian, later became known as the Roman Catholic Church. And now you know why the histories from the Catholic Church can't be trusted. Those early writers were part of the cover-up. They put the wrong Simon in Rome. They say it was Simon Peter with Paul, but it was Simon Magus. But they need Peter there. First, it makes it easier for them to call their pagan rituals Christianity by claiming Peter taught it, but more importantly, the whole foundation of the Bishop of Rome's authority over all the other bishops. The entire basis of the Catholic Church's power is built on Simon Peter being in Rome. They could claim that not only did the Roman Church get started by two apostles, unlike most other churches, but that one of them was the chief apostle, Yet it was all a lie, and that lie would be complete if it wasn't for what's recorded in the Bible. You can see why the Catholics' dominance in record-keeping is so important in this. One of the earliest Catholic sources of this time period comes from Bishop Eusebius in the 4th century. So that's about 200 years after these events. Here's what Paul Johnson writes in his A History of Christianity about Eusebius' history. Quote, Eusebius represented the wing of the church, which had captured the main centers of power, had established a firm tradition of monarchical bishops, and had recently allied itself with the Roman state. He wanted to show that the church he represented had always constituted the mainstream of Christianity, both in organization and faith. The truth is very different." So it's obvious what the Catholic writers were trying to do. Historians can see that. Their agenda is clear, make Rome supreme, and rewrite history to make it look like the truth. And it's not just Eusebius. Interestingly, the Catholic historians admit, Simon Magus had an outsized influence in how Christianity was being twisted. In 180 CE, Catholic writer Irenaeus, in order to combat these heretics, wrote a book called Against Heresies. He states, quote, For all those who are of perverse mind, having been set against the Mosaic legislation, judging it to be dissimilar and contrary to the doctrine of the gospel, have not applied themselves to investigate the causes of the difference of each covenant, since therefore they have been deserted by the paternal love and puffed up by Satan, being brought over to the doctrine of Simon Magus. They have apostatized in their opinions from him who is God, and imagine that they have themselves discovered more than the apostles by finding out another God, and maintained that the apostles preached the gospel still somewhat under the influence of Jewish opinions, but that they themselves are purer in doctrine and more intelligent than the apostles. This is Irenaeus' condemnation against those heretics. And yet, doesn't it sound familiar with all mainstream Christianity? Simon Magus was teaching lawlessness. Yes, he and his followers were saying that they were the authority, not the apostles. Irenaeus can admit This is the issue with Catholic heretics. But the problem is he won't admit that he and the rest of Catholics are doing it too. Takes one to know one, as the saying goes. It took some time for Simon Magus' teachings to completely dominate. It wasn't overnight. Those loyal to the teachings of Christ and the apostles fought for the truth, and you see them pop up from time to time, always small, always one leader preaching, They kept the Passover and the Sabbath, and this sets them apart from what the Catholics saw as heretical branches of Catholicism. But just the same, they all get persecuted violently. Makes it even harder to discern who is who, but just look at the teachings. It sets you straight. And there's a reason why Catholicism spread so readily, because they didn't have to change what they were doing. It looked good, on the surface, but inside it was pagan. Here's what Gerald Flurry writes, quote, they wanted the label of Christianity and they wanted the name of Christ and they were doing all they could to destroy the true church, end quote. As it turned out, there was much more of those people that wanted to do whatever they want and keep the pagan rituals. There's a lot more of those than those wanting to follow Christ and what the apostles taught. Fewer wanted to keep the law. It was a lot harder than being lawless. Now we see why Peter said Simon Magus' influence would be the gall of bitterness. It's prophetic. His influence was a poison that left people blind. They can't see it for what it is. The Catholic fathers adopted, borrowed all sorts of things, and not just pagan rituals. They adopted Greek philosophy and the organization of the Roman Empire. And if you view this from a modern historian perspective or a Catholic perspective, which is really the old historians, really any Western perspective that doesn't come from the Bible, this all looks like progress. It's a good thing. Decade after decade, as the government of the Western part of the Roman Empire broke down, the Catholic Church took its place. It began to take over government responsibilities. It brought order to Europe. This is what Simon Magus envisioned, though. His dream came true. Here's how Will Durant sums it up. Quote, It was not merely that the church took over some religious customs and forms common in pre-Christian Rome, the stole, and other vestments of pagan priests, the use of incense and holy water and purifications, the burning of candles and an everlasting light before the altar, the worship of the saints, the architectures of the basilica, the law of Rome as a basis for canon law, the title of Pontifex Maximus for the Supreme Pontiff, and in the 4th century, the Latin language as a noble enduring vehicle of Catholic ritual. The Roman gift was above all a vast framework of government, which as secular authority failed became the structures of ecclesiastical rule. Soon the bishops, rather than the Roman prefects, would be the source of order and the seat of power in the cities. The metropolitans, or archbishops, would support, if not supplant, the provincial governors, and the synod of bishops would succeed the provincial assembly. The Roman church followed in the footsteps of the Roman state. It conquered the provinces, beautified the capital, and established discipline and unity from frontier to frontier." It took some time for the Catholic Church to grow in power, but as the Roman Empire declined, the Church eventually ruled the civil government. It is built into the very fabric of Europe. We see it today. Looking back, it seems like a matter of course, but during those times, it wasn't certain that the Catholic Church would maintain its power. And this gets back to the whole point of starting here, when talking about Charlemagne, the main person responsible for keeping Europe Catholic was Charlemagne. As his government spread, so did the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church itself was a religious government and a state government, one that would not only rule Europe, it would terrorize those who didn't conform, especially those who continued to teach what Christ and the apostles taught. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John gives the Catholic Church one of its best descriptions, John wrote the book around 90 CE when the Catholic Church was growing stronger and stronger. This book is the last record of this time period on Christianity, untainted by the bias of Catholic writers trying to assert their dominance. When John describes this false church with its religious and civil government, he wrote, quote, And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon, end quote. It looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Now there has been a lot written about the Catholic Church and its history, but only one book gets to the truth of the matter, and that is the short book by Joe Fleury, The True History of God's True Church. It's free and offered by this show's sponsored, the Philadelphia Church of God. You can order it on the trump.com. And if you're interested more in what happened to the church that actually believed and practiced what Jesus Christ taught, his message, then I highly recommend you order this book. This is the first of a five part series on Charlemagne, the forging of Europe. I start with the Catholic Church in this episode because so much of what Charlemagne did was through the help and perspective of the Catholic Church. It's impossible to understand his reign without first understanding this powerful institution that gave him his crown. And inspiration. So as fair warning, Charlemagne doesn't show up until episode four of this series. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on KPCG.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the Trumpet.com or on KPCG.fm.